Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 11th edition of the Rambling Brews podcast, hosted by yours truly. If you didn't already know, I go by the name Tim, and I hope, I sincerely hope you've all got some ice cold beers nearby and you're ready to roll because I've got an absolute doozy of an episode this week. The NHL trade deadline's approaching quickly. It's a little less than a month away, so we'll take a look at some rumors swirling around some big names that may be on the move across the league. Also, Marc-Andre Fleury, the flower, has entered the top five all-time in NHL wins as a goaltender, a remarkable accomplishment. We'll dive into that. And the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament starts this Friday, arguably the best sports weekend of the year coming up in a few days, so I'm fired up. But first, this past Tuesday was March 16th, 3-16, which in my opinion should be a national holiday to honor the legend himself, the rattlesnake, Stone Cold Steve Austin, because after all... Austin 316 does say that he just whipped your ass. So in honor of the rattlesnake, and in the words of Alan Jackson and the late Jim Ed Brown, Papa top again. I've just got time for one more round. Set him up, my friend. <laughs> now you can see why I was kicked out of the chorus in sixth grade, me and like two other people in the entire grade. So I didn't make it. So you can see why now. But I'm popping the top, and I got a beer ready to go. Another day, another pod, another Coors Light. I wonder if old Jim Ed Brown drank Coors Light, by the way. I was thinking that earlier. He would be obviously a smart man if he did, but what an unbelievable name that is for a country artist. Jim Ed Brown, rest in peace to him, man. Died in 2015, made an unbelievable song in Papa Top again. But with that being said, I hope everybody had a tremendous week. Uh, wherever you are, it's likely getting warmer and the weather's turning nice. Although, if you know anything about the city of Pittsburgh, it could be 80 degrees one day and 31 and snowing sideways the next. So we're not completely out of the woods yet, but this is the best time of the year in my opinion. And it was a beautiful weekend this past weekend. My wife and I took my daughter to the aviary. Uh, if you don't know what the aviary is, you know, don't be alarmed. I didn't know what it was really either. Uh, my wife's been telling me we, we should go for the last you know couple of years, especially since uh, our daughter was born. It's basically like a zoo, and but it's for birds, exotic birds, and they do like this cool stuff where they get uh, birds that aren't indigenous to the area and they nurse them back to health and things like that, or endangered birds. They've got everything from flamingos to bald eagles. It's like a big thing in Pittsburgh. They have a camera on these bald eagles, and they show it on the news all the time whenever they're hatching their young and stuff. And bald eagles are badass, by the way. They're so cool to see in person. And, and my wife, she watches like all these shows on the weekends all the time of like uh, them rescuing animals and things like that. Not necessarily at this aviary that's on TV, but this that's what they do. They rescue these animals and these birds. Uh, they nurse them back to health. They, they kind of help them, uh, you know, recoup their population, I guess, and have babies and things like that and live in a controlled environment. It's pretty awesome. You go in there and like, it's very um, similar, just like a zoo. It's similar to their, um, I guess, what their environment and their habitat would be if they were out in the wild. So it's pretty awesome to see. Um, and my daughter absolutely loved it. She's big on animals and she was obsessed with the penguins. I was so happy. It was, I was the most proud father on the planet when we're walking through this aviary. And she was so obsessed with the penguins. It was great. Like they have this penguin walk. Unfortunately, we missed it, but it's apparently a big thing um, at the aviary here in the city. And like, I guess the penguins, I don't know if they go from wherever they were eating to like, you know, where they're going to be hanging out for the day or whatever the case is. But we missed that, unfortunately. But we did get to see 
Uh, the penguins like just hanging out outside, you know, swimming, whatever the case is, waddling around. It was pretty cool, and she loved it. She was just in awe of these penguins. It was awesome. If if I could just get her to uh, be in awe of the Pittsburgh Penguins, the, uh, you know, in the NHL, as much as she loved these penguins at the aviary, I would be ecstatic. Uh, it was a great time. If you haven't ever been to an aviary, I don't know how many there are around. I just know there's one here in Pittsburgh. It's pretty popular. Uh, but if you haven't ever been, I would suggest going, especially if you have kids. It's a pretty good time. But the whole time, as I'm walking around this aviary, all I could think about, like, as I'm watching my daughter, she's loving these penguins. Like I said, all I could think about was Penguin Pete the first mascot of the Pittsburgh Penguins, who was actually a live South African Penguin, who they would trot out onto the ice prior to the game. He would actually like lead the team on the ice. You know how, you know how now like they'll be like, welcome your Pittsburgh Penguins and the horn blows and everything. Well, back in the day, and this is like 1970, 1971, they had uh, Penguin Pete was his name and they would bring him out. He was, like I said, a live South African Penguin He'd come out, he'd come entertain the fans in between periods. And at that point, honestly, the Penguins were so bad that he was like the biggest attraction for the crowd. He got the biggest pop. Everybody loved him. Um, And so much so that the owner of the Penguins, Jack McGregor, he's the one that founded the team. And his wife named him the Penguins. That's a different story for a different day. But the owner of the team actually paid CCM, the hockey company, to make a pair of skates for Pete. This is ridiculous, right? I know you're probably laughing right now. And they tried to give him lessons to skate. They wanted him to be able to go out there and be able to skate and, you know, do whatever he wanted to do. I don't know if they had plans for him in the intermissions and things like that to do these different types of tricks. But I don't know whose idea this was or what they were drinking or smoking or whatever that they thought they could teach a South African penguin to skate. I don't know who who's qualified to teach those lessons. I would love to know that. Um, but ultimately, you know, it, it didn't work because every time they had a they had a lesson. Um, from what I've read, he would just, the Pete would just flop down on the ice and lay on his belly and have a blast or whatever it was. Um, so it never came to fruition. And unfortunately, shortly after Pete's arrival, the team noticed that Pete just wasn't himself. You know, he was feeling wobbly. He wasn't walking right. He looked ill. Just something was off. So they took him to a vet and he was diagnosed with pneumonia. So the ownership is just like, what? Like they're talking to the vet. They're like, no fucking way. How, how could he have pneumonia? He's a penguin. He lives on ice, right? Wrong. They had purchased a South African penguin who was not used to living on the ice. So unfortunately, Pete was hospitalized and later he died a few days after that. Um, Awfully sad story for Pete. And I wish it stopped there, but it gets worse. Imagine if this happened today. Ownership, McGregor again, knew that he was such a fan favorite, Pete that is, that they elected to have him stuffed and put in the lobby of the Civic Arena. That's where the Penguins used to play. They played in the Civic Arena. Later, it was the Mellon Arena. It's right across the street. Well, now it's a parking lot, but it was right across the street from where PPG Paints Arena is, a legendary um, NHL barn. And as you could expect, animal rights activists were all over this. They were not happy. They were picketing outside. They were sending letters, threatening to sue, threatening to boycott, all this stuff. Um, Again, like I said, imagine if this happened today, but this is even back in the, the 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And the Penguins finally bit the bullet. They said, you know what? We'll take him down. We apologize if we offended anybody. You know, we were just trying to do whatever for the fans. And everybody loves Penguin Pete and all this stuff. And this is just insane to me. And then before they could take him out of the lobby, somebody stole him. And he's never been seen again. So some yinzer, er down Turtle Creek, more than likely has a stuffed Pete in his basement. 
Just an unbelievable story. That's all I could think about was poor Pete as I'm walking through this aviary and we're watching the penguins. It just reminded me of it. It was pretty insane. Uh, but how like how funny would it be? And maybe funny is not the right word. It depends on who you're talking to. I don't want to offend anybody. But like how ridiculous would it be, I should say, if you're like walking through, like say you go to an estate sale, because it's not out of the realm of possibility now with like the, the time frame, right? You go, to, you go to an estate sale in town or you go to a consignment shop or something and you're hanging out with your wife and she's like, oh, this is a nice you know, antique dresser. This is great. Uh, look at this dress over here. Look at these you know, old time clothes. These are cool. Or these artifacts. Oh shit, there's a stuffed penguin right there. I wonder what that is. And like you find uh, Penguin Pete or, you know, it would be insane. I, like it would just be unbelievable. That whole story is banana lands to me. I cannot believe that's true. And I just wanted to tell that because, like I said, I was thinking about it whenever we were at the aviary and I was thinking, you know, there's not a lot of people uh, that know that story. And I wanted to uh, tell it on the podcast here. So uh, on behalf of the Rambling Bruce podcast, we're going to say rest in peace to Pete. Um, I think the Penguins are much better off now that Iceberg, uh, the traditional mascot, um, is the mascot of the team. And he walks around and dances and slides down the rails and everything. And no true animals are in danger. Um so it's just unbelievable. I can't believe that. So rest in peace to Pete. Swig a beer for Pete as well. But at any rate, like I said, weather's getting nice. It's daylight longer. Uh, daylight savings time has kicked in. People are genuinely in a better mood this time of year, 100%. And it's typical uh, reasons like that that it's my favorite time of year. Typically, we'd be watching or we'd be getting ready to watch the NHL playoffs. It's awesome whenever you can come home from work. You throw on your favorite like team's uh, sweater. You rock some shorts. You're outside hanging out with your friends or whatever the case is, grilling up some burgers and dogs and drinking some beers, getting ready for a playoff game. So it's even better now that it's like the dead midpoint of the season. And we've got so much hockey left to watch. Um, it's just crazy. I'm so fired up right now if you can't tell. And you know who else is fired up? New York Rangers fans. They're rejoicing. The hockey world's rejoicing. And it's all around great to see, I think, for the game of hockey that New York Rangers star winger Artemi Panarin did return this past week um, against the Boston Bruins. He also played a game against the Philadelphia Flyers, I believe, uh, after a few-week leave of absence that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast regarding some disturbing allegations that were levied against him by Andre Nazarov, his former coach in Russia and the KHL. I read some stories, too, that like this Nazarov guy, this story that he told that I went over in the, the allegations of him allegedly um, assaulting a 19-year-old Latvian female back in 2011, this story didn't really get any traction in Russia in terms of media and the hockey world and everything, and it really irritated Nazarov. And there was also reports that um, there were a few other uncorroborated allegations that Nazarov kind of had teed up that like we're all phony, just like this one. They're all phony. Just try to make Artemi Panarin look bad and everything. Um, but him and the him and the tabloid he was working with ultimately decided and settled on this uh, one we've been talking about the the alleged assault on the Latvian female. So what an absolute joke this Nazarov is. It's great to see Artemi Panarin back. Uh, like I said, he played against the Boston Bruins and the Philadelphia Flyers two games since his return. He's had two goals, three assists in those two games. Just a huge boost to that lineup. Um, their head coach, David Quinn, he mentioned that Panarin, like I said, was a huge boost to the locker room. And for me, selfishly, thankfully it came after the uh, Penguins dummy the Rangers a few times last week. Um, I mean, but how could it not? How could it not have a big impact on the locker room? Like Quinn said that uh, Artemi Panarin was happy, smiling ear to ear. He just seems to be back at peace. He's back on the ice. Everything seems to be on the up and up for him. Um, so it's definitely great to see. We'll see if anything comes of those allegations. Uh, but for now, you know, I want to say welcome back to the Breadman. 
Um, it's great that the league has him back, and he's electric to watch. So much fun to to watch play, and it's great for the Rangers um, as they, I guess, try to continue on their season. But last week, I mentioned they don't really have much of a shot of making the playoffs. Uh, the New York Rangers, um, and now they, they're starting goaltender Igor Shesterkin. He's on the shelf. Um, he's banged up. I believe it's a lower body injury. Um, you know how the NHL is. They don't really give much detail. It's either upper body or lower body injury. Um, but he's banged up right now, and I think the Rangers are okay with that. They've got a lot of young prospects. They've got a lot of young talent on the team. I know I mentioned Panarin. He's a little bit older, but he's still he's the leader of the team, face of the franchise. But I think they're they're better suited to kind of wait, and they know this isn't their year, and they can go for it in the future and kind of just try to figure out what's going on and maybe make some deals at the trade deadline, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, maybe make some deals at the trade deadline that could potentially benefit their team going forward. So with uh, Shesterkin out, they do have Alexander Georgiev. Uh, he's a great young goaltender. But they've been giving a journeyman goalie, Keith Kincaid. He's played for a bunch of teams in recent years. He's a pretty solid backup, not necessarily a starter. Um, I'm not I, I'm not sure he's a starting caliber goalie, but he can definitely be somebody that could fill in for you in a pinch or if you have a goalie injured. Um, so I think it's smart what the Rangers are doing. They're basically giving Keith Kincaid some time in net. Um, it's essentially a tryout to show other teams that maybe are you know in the market for a goaltender that want to add depth to that position at the deadline. Um I think it's very smart. The Rangers basically are saying, you know, hey, we know we're not going to make the playoffs, so let's kind of just see what we can do. And they're doing that with some other players, too. They've got some young guys that potentially uh, could move or some veterans that could move, I should say, and and potentially bring back some young players or bring back some prospects and keep loading up for the future because, they, again, they know it's not their year. Um, I think with that, we should definitely just take a look at the race for the playoffs as it stands today across the league. Uh, Let me take a swig of beer before we dive into these standings. At this point, uh, as I'm recording this podcast, um, the Washington Capitals, they actually just knocked off the New York Islanders, who had a nine-game winning streak going, um, and and leapfrogged the Islanders for first place in the East Division, playing great, just shoving it up my ass because I said that they were going to miss the playoffs this year. It was just stupid. I mean, the Capitals have always been, in the Ovechkin era, have been a regular season juggernaut, so I should have known better. I just thought they were going to slip back this year, but they're playing great. They've won six straight themselves. Um, they're at 19 wins, six losses, and four overtime losses for 42 points in 29 games. The New York Islanders, I just mentioned, they just lost to the Caps, but they won nine straight prior to that. So they really leapfrogged all the way up to the top of the uh, the East Division as well. They're tied with the Capitals at 19 wins, seven losses, and four overtime losses with 42 points. But they sit in second place because, again, they've played one more game than the Capitals. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, they had a six-game winning streak going themselves. Um, but they just lost Tuesday night to the Boston Bruins. They have 18 wins, 10 losses, and one overtime loss for 37 points in 29 games, so five points behind the uh, the Islanders and the Capitals for tops of the division. And the Boston Bruins, who just knocked off the Penguins on Tuesday night, um, they were struggling a bit. They they only had, I believe, one goal or more in uh, one of their previous six games. So they're playing uh, playing a little bit you know, poor, but the game against the Penguins on Tuesday night, Evgeny Malkin was out. He got injured early on in the game. And then Brandon Tenev on a pretty questionable play that I want to dive into real quick. Um, he got kicked out of the game, five-minute major, on a hit on uh, Jarrett Tenorti of the Boston Bruins. Now, if you didn't see the hit, basically what happened was Brandon Tanev, he's known for finishing his checks. He's just like a little pinball out there. He's very difficult to play against. He's all over you. He's like a gnat. He's a great player to have on your team. Uh, one of my favorite Penguins and one of the best you know guys at his role in the league. He's just a pest, an absolute guy that gets under your skin, always finishes his checks. 
And that's what he was doing here. Uh, Jarrett Tenorti's coming up uh, from his own zone. He wants to dump the puck in. So he's got to gain the red line in order to not ice the puck. So he, he gains the red line. He shoots the puck in. When he does so, what he forgets to do is basically what you're taught when you're young is you always got to prepare for the hit. You've got to protect yourself. I don't want to badmouth him. I don't like to see him get injured, but that's what he did. He When he dumped the puck in, he did it, and he didn't get back on his second foot. So he's on his left foot. All his weight's on his left foot. His right foot's in the air. And Tanev comes in at full speed. Clean hit. Hits him right in the, the logo of the jersey. Straight on. No, no, nothing from behind. Nothing from the side. It was straight on. Good hit. Maybe about six to eight feet away from the boards. And with him being off balance, with Tenorti being off balance, he's on his one foot, like I mentioned. The force of Tanev's hit essentially shoves him into the boards. And... I mean, he took a nasty fall. Like his right leg was bent behind him. He hit the back of his head on the uh, on the boards. Could tell he was concussed right away. I was watching um, the Boston Bruins broadcast actually, listening to Jack Edwards to see if he had a conniption or not. And he surprisingly, and his co-host, uh, his name escapes me at this point, um, basically said, you know, this was a clean hit. Uh, it was just an unfortunate play. You know, unfortunate spot on the ice, and. Jarrett Tenorti actually has some uh, concussion history, so we you know we help we we hope he's all well, he's fine, he's good. Uh, we hope he comes back, speedy recovery for Tenorti. Um, and and, and Tenorti actually is the one that hurt Malkin, as I mentioned earlier in the game, um, on another just routine you know clean hit. So things happen out there, but the referees for some reason in the Tanev hit, and this was like unanimous online that it was a garbage call. I didn't see one single person that had a brain cell that was saying that this was a, a dirty hit or should have been a penalty, let alone the referees called a five-minute major penalty and a game misconduct. So they kicked uh, a, a match penalty. They kicked Brandon Tenev out of the game. I don't think he'll get suspended or anything. Like I said, it wasn't even close to – it shouldn't even really have been a penalty. I could see a two-minute boarding penalty based on my um, description last week or a couple weeks ago when I was talking about – uh, Tom Wilson in, in the letter of the law, if you have somebody then you force uh, forcefully hit them into the boards and they're injured or whatever the case is, it could be a boarding. It's up to the referee's assessment. Fine. I'll give you that. I'll give you a two minute boarding, but a five minute major and a game misconduct can completely change the game. Not to mention the fact that Evgeny Malkin, like I said, he already went out earlier in the game and now Brandon Tenev is out. So the Penguins are down two centermen. So now they're having to flop their lines out. They're down two forwards, obviously, but they're down two centermen. The most key position on the ice is center. So now you have Sidney Crosby going to have to double shift, triple shift. He's playing fourth line, third line, first line, you know, power plays. His ice time is going way up. So it was a huge impact on the game. Um, the Penguins almost pulled it out. Uh, but you, you can't really fault them for losing that. They lost two players in the middle of the game, two prominent players, uh, obviously Evgeny Malkin top tier he's been playing great points in eight straight uh coming in into tonight uh 12 points in those eight games just playing unbelievable hockey right now he's finding his groove you can tell he's got his legs back so you hate to see him go down you hope it's a short-term injury um I haven't heard anything about it as far as you know what his timetable is what the injury actually is um so we'll see more more on that I'm sure we'll have some more information when this podcast drops but we can talk about that um on the next episode but all in all, just a, a crazy game um, to see. You, you know, it came down to the wire, and um, the Bruins ended up picking up the victory. So they sit in fourth place. They're three points behind the Penguins. Um, they have two games at hand, meaning they've played two less games. So they're at 15 wins, eight losses, and four overtime losses. So 34 points in 27 games. And then just below them is the uh, Philadelphia Flyers on the outside looking in. 
They've got 31 points in 26 games. And then you drop down a little bit, five points below them is the Rangers that I just talked about. So they kind of see, you know what, we're eight points out of a playoff spot right now with about 29 games to go. Probably going to be a, a, an uphill climb for sure, especially since they're not really very consistent. I mean, they've got more losses than they've got wins. So they're really struggling this year. It's best for them to do what I was talking about before and kind of just write this season off, do what they can to preserve some prospects and some young talent for the future. And, uh, Again, it's a five-team race in this division. Philadelphia on the outside looking in, but they're only three points back of the uh, Boston Bruins for that four seed. So it's going to be a tight race, um, you know, this last 28, 29 games, depending on which team you're talking about. Uh, moving down to the West Division. So the West Division, we've got the Vegas Golden Knights sitting atop the division, the cream of the crop. Um, they're 19 wins, six losses, and one overtime loss for 39 points through 26 games. Just buzzing. They've been buzzing since day one. Marc-Andre Fleury right now, we'll talk about in a little bit, is having a hell of a season, arguably his best season of his career, uh, playing great. They've got Robin Leonard, their other goalie. He missed the last 17 games with an injury. Um, he's coming back. He, he was on long-term injury reserve. I believe he's eligible to return on Thursday. Um, so that's just going to add more fuel to the fire for that team. They're going to have... Uh, you know, both Leonard and Flurry pushing each other. I think Flurry should keep the cage at this point. I mean, the way he's been playing, the way he's kept that team afloat with Leonard going out, not more than afloat. He's played great. He, he's a top candidate, as we talked about last week, for the Vezina Trophy, the best goaltender in the NHL. Um, so they're absolutely just running the show in the West Division. Uh, Minnesota is great. Um, they're right now four points behind the Vegas Golden Knights at 17 wins, eight losses, and one overtime loss for 35 points through 26 games. And Kirill Kaprizov is just absolutely lighting it up still. I know we talked about him a couple weeks ago as far as the Rookie of the Year favorite, and I think he's only pulling away from that. Um, just absolutely unbelievable. And one thing I wanted to talk about, it pisses me off, is you see a lot of uh, media coming out and saying that, and they said the same thing for Panarin when he came over um, from Russia. You know, I think he was 25 when he came over. K Kirill Kaprizov is 23, I believe. So he's a little bit older than some of the other rookies, right? Some of the rookies are 19, they're 20, 21. And some of these media members, um, I've seen Pierre Lebrun on, on uh, he, he used to work for ESPN. I want to say he works for The Athletic now. I could be totally wrong, but he's a, he's a respected reporter in the NHL. But he's coming out and he's like leading the brigade to say that Kirill Kaprizov should be ineligible for rookie of the year because he's too old. Like that makes no sense. He's he's 23. He's a rookie to the NHL. He played, yes, he played pro hockey in uh, Russia for a couple years, you know, whatever the case is, but it's a completely different game. The ice sheet's smaller. The game is totally different. You've got to come over here and adapt to North American hockey, adapt to North American life, and you're going to take it away from him because he's playing well and you think somebody else deserves it? That's complete and utter bullshit. What are you going to do? Say Ovechkin didn't deserve it? Um, are you going to say other players didn't deserve it that maybe played some time like Austin Matthews? I don't, I'm not sure if Matthews won the call or escapes me at this point, but he, he skipped out on, you know, playing juniors and he went over to the Swedish elite league and that was his decision, but it, it shouldn't disqualify him. So that's complete stupid ass argument that Kaprizov, he's playing unbelievable. He's electric to watch. Everybody's been saying how finally somebody in Minnesota makes them worth watching on TV. And that's no knock on the wild players, but they've been very boring for a long time. And he's so much fun to watch. I've been watching a lot of Minnesota Wild games. And to say he should be ineligible for the Rookie of the Year, I think, is just a joke. So um, I totally disagree with Pierre LeBron and anybody that has that line of thinking. I wanted to get that out there. But more power to the Minnesota Wild. And keep uh, keep buzzing Kaprizov, man. He is playing so well. And he's a bright, bright young star for the NHL. The NHL def desperately, you know, they could they could use some more stars and some more colorful stars that have, you know, sick plays, sick hands, 
good personality, great guy. I haven't seen a person that said they don't like him. Fan, doesn't matter. You could be the biggest hater of the Minnesota Wild and you love watching Kaprizov play. Um, it, it just boggles my mind that people think like, oh, he should be ineligible. Come on. Jesus Christ. Um, moving down the, the division, Colorado, they've got 16 wins, eight losses and two overtime losses through 26 games. That's 34 points. There's just a point behind the Minnesota Wild. This division is tight. Um, and we knew it would be St. Louis, 14 wins, nine losses, five overtime losses for 33 points in 28 games. They sit in the fourth spot, um, in LA and Arizona, they're kind of on the fringe of potentially making some noise. We've talked about this, but they're five points. LA is five points back of the blues and they're in fifth and, uh, Arizona, they're seven points back. Um, I'm sorry. They're five points back actually. Um, as they just picked up two points. So they're five points back of the blues as well. So it's pretty much a a six team race there, but the top four are really, I think um, head and shoulders better than the five and 16, but you never know. You go on a little mini skid, lose some games. It could happen because it's such, it's a shorter season. So you don't, you you never know what could happen. So we'll keep our eye on that. Um, So we'll take a look now at the uh, North division. That's the all Canadian division. Um, atop the division, as we've talked about, you know, they've been buzzing all year. We've got the Toronto Maple Leafs. They've got 19 wins, nine losses, and two overtime losses for 40 points through 30 games. Uh, the Winnipeg Jets have leapfrogged over the Edmonton Oilers in terms of uh, having less games played. They have 17 wins, nine losses, and two overtime losses for 36 points, while the Oilers have 18 wins and 13 losses with no overtime losses, surprisingly. Might be one of the only teams in the league with no overtime losses. Um I mean, how could you lose an overtime game if you're the Oilers if you've got McDavid and Dreisaitl out there at the same time? It's almost just ridiculous to even try to defend that. But they've got 36 points as well, but they played three more games in the Winnipeg Jets. Um, and then you've got the Montreal Canadiens that are sitting there at 13 wins, eight losses, and seven overtime losses with 33 points through 28 games um, and two points ahead of the Calgary Flames who were on the outside looking in and uh, three points ahead of the Vancouver Canucks who are on the outside looking in. So six-team race still there. Uh, I think Toronto pretty much runs away with this division, but don't count Winnipeg and Edmonton out. They could potentially make a run and knock them off, but the way that Toronto's playing, um, their GM, Kyle Dubas, came out and said, you know, he's looking uh, to potentially trade some prospects and some picks, which you haven't heard from the Maple Leafs over the last few years. Um, not necessarily looking for a hockey deal. They're looking for a rental. They're looking for a big-time player that can come in and make a difference, and we'll talk about the trade deadline here in a little bit, maybe some of the players that are out there. Um but I I don't I don't know what areas Toronto can really improve on this season. I think coming into this season, I have I was a little bit skeptical on their back end. Their blue line had some holes in it, but they're playing great. Give them credit. Their goaltending is great. They're getting a lot of production from their top end talent and their secondary scoring. Their bottom two lines are playing well as well. So you've got to give them credit. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they try to add because if they try to add a big piece or they do add a big piece, look out because I think they're going to run away with this division and anything they add could potentially make them almost unbeatable. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. In the Central Division, um, again, Florida Panthers are surprising a lot of teams. Uh, They're sitting atop the division right now. They've got 19 wins, 5 losses, and 4 overtime losses for 42 points through 28 games. Playing unbelievable. Um, Sergei Bobrovsky is playing great. He's finding his game. They've got a lot of young guys contributing and some guys that people have never heard of um, contributing on the score sheet, just up and down the lineup. Alexander Barkov is the most underappreciated player in the NHL. He's quietly just so good. A lot of guys in the league will tell you he's one of the best players, if not the best player in the NHL. He's got great hands, great defense, great in the faceoff circle. He can score. He can contribute in so many different ways. It's just unfortunate for him that he plays in Florida in a market that's not necessarily that big. Um, that potentially, you know, causes him to not get as much notoriety as he deserves. Notoriety, I should say, as he deserves. Um, 
but you know, he can, he probably doesn't mind it. Honestly, he's just flying under the radar and they're in the first in the division. That's all he cares about. Um, they've won three straight. You've got the Carolina hurricanes right behind them, uh, with 20 wins, six losses, and one overtime loss through 27 games, uh, 41 points again, one point right behind the Florida Panthers and they've won eight straight. So they're buzzing as well. This division is tight to the top three. Anyway, uh, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay. I didn't think they would be third in the division. Uh, but they're 19 wins, six losses, and two overtime losses for 40 points through 27 games. So two points off the division lead and one point behind Carolina. So uh, two points separates one through three in that division. And then you've got the Chicago Blackhawks and the Columbus Blue Jackets uh, sitting at 33 points and 29 points, respectively, fighting for that uh, final playoff spot there in the Central Division. So it's going to be a tight race. I'm so excited to watch it. Um, you know, how it plays out in all these divisions. And like I said, this is the best time of the year. Weather's warming up, more hockey on TV, beers will be flowing. And speaking of that, let me take a sip of beer because I do want to mention one big injury and a little uh, wrinkle uh, that could possibly impact the the trade deadline for some teams. I mentioned the, the New York Islanders. Like I said, they had won nine straight before they lost against the Capitals. Uh, and they're sitting tied for the uh, division lead in the East. But unfortunately for them, in the process of that nine-game win streak, their captain, Anders Lee, uh, suffered a season-ending injury, a se regular season-ending injury, I should say. So he goes on the long-term injury reserve, uh, won't be available for the rest of the regular season, which is a huge blow to the Islanders. He's a great net front presence, great leader, uh, one of their best players. He plays top line, left wing, first power play, uh, really compliments their superstar, Matthew Barzell, great. Um, so again, huge blow to the Islanders, but... The wrinkle that I mentioned was now they have, because he went on LTIR, so for those who don't know what that means, that's long-term injury reserve, meaning so if you go on there, you can, they're basically done for the season in this instance. So what that allows that team to do is basically take the amount of money that that player makes. So in this case, Anders Lee makes $7 million a year. They're allowed now to go over the salary cap by $7 million because since he's not available for the regular season. And whenever the uh, playoffs start, the salary cap goes away. So the salary cap, you have to be cap compliant the entire season up to the last day of the regular season. And after that, it really doesn't matter. So what this affords the Islanders, if they want to, is the ability to go out and sign or trade for, I should say, trade for a player that maybe has a $7 million cap hit or even higher if they move out some salaries. So if they want to go out and potentially, we'll talk about in a second, potentially get a Taylor Hall. Uh, we've talked about how he's struggling mightily and how the Buffalo Sabres, I mean, they've lost 11 straight games, so they're going to be, it's going to be a fire sale up there um, as far as getting rid of assets. But if an Islanders team wants to go out and add a scoring winger like Taylor Hall, they can because he has an $8 million salary. And they could maybe ship out a million dollars or potentially get Buffalo since Buffalo is desperate to um, acquire assets and move pieces to retain a little bit of that salary since it's only over one year for Taylor Hall, that eight million. So they maybe retain 25% of it or whatever the case is. I think the max is 50% you can retain per the collective bargaining agreement. Um, but it allows them to do that. So basically, if the Islanders were interested in Hall, they could make the deal happen. This is huge. And this is a big point of contention. Um, for some general managers across the league. In 2014-2015, uh, it really showed up uh, when the Chicago Blackhawks, they went on to win the Stanley Cup. But uh, Patrick Kane, late in the season, I think well, midway through the season, I should say, maybe 20, 30 games to go, he suffered an injury, um, a shoulder injury, and he was on LTIR the rest of the season. And it allowed, because he has such a massive cap hit, it allowed the uh, Blackhawks to go out and get a player like Andrew Desjardins, a depth scorer, 
Um, really good checker, good penalty killer, um, young player, young legs. They added Kimo Timonen, a longtime Philadelphia Flyers defenseman who was in search of a Stanley Cup, but it was a very, very solid defenseman for a long time. Added some veteran uh, leadership to that team. And Antoine Vermette. Uh, one of the best face-off men of his time, great bottom six forward, great penalty killer, could uh, chip in on the score sheet as well, could play power play, could move up and down the lineup as well. He could play with great players. It allowed them to add those players, and they ended up making a run. And then whenever uh, the playoffs started, Patrick Kane came back. So they were able to go get those three guys, add to their team, not really give up much, maybe some prospects and, and some draft picks, and then add a player like Patrick Kane to your lineup when the playoffs start because the salary cap goes out the window. Um, it's, it's definitely a point of contention. Like Bob Murray, the GM of the Anaheim ducks for years has been wanting the NHL to rid this, get rid of this rule and call it the cane loophole. He calls it, um, because like, it's, it's almost like a competitive imbalance, he says, or a competitive advantage. But at the end of the day, like the other side of the coin is like, well, okay. But if your top player goes out, you know, is it really a competitive advantage? You still got to play well and make the playoffs. But if you do make it to the playoffs, or I guess depending on when your player goes out, if you're already like at the top of the standings and you'd have to have a drastic fall from grace to miss the postseason, um, I could understand his argument. So there hasn't really been any resolve there, um, but just pretty crazy. So we'll see what the uh, New York Islanders can do. I mean, they've got some money to play with now, and they know Lee uh, should be back for the postseason. And like I said on the standings part of the podcast, they're really buzzing, so they should have no fear of missing the postseason. Um, and they could go out and add a guy like Taylor Hall. I mean, um, the trade deadline is coming up. It's April 12th, so I'm not really sure how it's going to go this year uh, for many teams. I don't think there's going to be a lot of big moves. Usually this day is like Christmas to me. Like It's one of the best days of the year for a hockey fan. I used to, every year I'd take the day off of work if I could. Um, I'd sit my ass on the couch. I'd have some snacks. I'd have a nice big spread. I'd be watching it from, I think it starts at like 10 AM. The coverage starts all the way. And then the trade deadlines usually at 3 PM or 4 PM, um, Eastern time. So I would just sit there my ass in front of the TV all day and watch these trades. They've got the little ticker on the side of who's in play, who's talking to who they've got all the insiders on. Um, so it's usually one of the best days of the year if you're a, an avid hockey fan. Uh, but this year, I'm not sure how it's going to go. Like I said, you know, teams don't have a lot of cap space unless you're a team like the Islanders um, that have some LTIR room, and there's not a lot of them out there. Um, also, there's a lot up in the air with you know COVID and the way the salary cap's going to be. I mean, all the teams have basically been told it's going to be a flat cap at $81.5 million for at least the next two years um, after this season. So there's teams that are strapped up against the cap, and they don't want to potentially take on a deal um, that's going to add to that cap and give them more cap problems. Also, they don't want to give up a ton of assets to acquire a player that's only going to be there one year that they know that they cannot sign again because they don't have the cap space. So it definitely uh, throws a wrinkle into the, the best day of the year for me in terms of the, the trade deadline. But I think like I've talked about before, a lot of the big deals that there are going to be any would be a team like the Islanders that has the LTIR space or they're going to wait till the offseason if the Sabres or somebody are going to move on from a Jack Eichel or move on from a Sam Reinhardt or something like that. Any big-time uh, deals, I think, will come in the offseason. Um, a couple of names that are out there outside of Taylor Hall, uh, Matthias Ekholm. He's a great defenseman for the Nashville Predators. We talked about them last week, how they're really struggling. And it's a, a, so much of a head-scratcher for me. They've got a great blue line, and he's a great defenseman. Um, great stay at home. He, he can chip in a little bit offensively, but he's a solid two-way defenseman. And I think he could add a lot uh, to some of the suitors that I've seen that are you know kind of pursuing him. Um, the asking price appears to be really high, Nashville. 
Uh, they want like a Jake Muzzin type return that um, LA got for Jake Muzzin from Toronto. And that return basically would be like a first round pick and two prospects, two, two players that are potentially on the verge of NHL, um, you know, making the NHL lineup, but definitely a first round pick with them. And some of the teams I've seen that are in on uh, Ekholm or the Winnipeg Jets, the Boston Bruins, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Philadelphia Flyers and the Montreal Canadiens. But a lot of teams have kind of been turned off by the asking price um, of a first rounder and two prospects. So more to come on that. We'll keep an eye on Matias Ekholm, but I'd love to see him in the Penguin sweater one day. Um, you know, but I, again, I don't think it's going to happen for sure for the Penguins. Um, Eric Carlson. Eric Carlson's an interesting story. Uh, he's now a San Jose Shark. A few years ago, like I want to take you guys back to 2017. So the second half of the Penguins back-to-back. If you guys remember, in Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Final, the Penguins played Ottawa, right? So they went to double overtime, and ultimately Chris Kunitz scored the double overtime winning goal for the Penguins to go on to the Stanley Cup Final, where they eventually beat the Nashville Predators to win back-to-back. And that team, that Ottawa team, was pretty good. I mean, they weren't like an offensive juggernaut by any means. They played really solid defense. They had Mark Stone... Um, you know, they had Eric Carlson, Craig Anderson was pretty solid in that mark my thought on the back end. They had some good guys and like a few years removed from that, that team is completely gone. Like they moved on from Mark Stone. They moved on from, um, players that they had later, like Duchesne. They traded Eric Carlson, um, to the San Jose Sharks. And at the time, whenever he was in Ottawa, he was arguably the best player in the National Hockey League. He would play 35 minutes a night, no sweat, not an ounce of sweat on him, not a drop of sweat, just playing great, Um, just so, so smooth out there. One of the best skaters, smartest players. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't work out for him in Ottawa, and he wanted to move on and go to San Jose, who at the time I thought was a contender. They were coming off the previous year like that I talked about with the Penguins beating the Senators to go to the Stanley Cup Final. The Penguins beat the Sharks the year before that in 2016 in the Stanley Cup Final. So they're not far removed from that when Carlson moves over there. So he's probably thinking, man, this team's pretty solid. We've got some veteran leadership. We've got some young players like Timo Meyer and uh, Tomas Hurdle. And, you know, he was probably like not ever expecting what's happening now because the San Jose Sharks are just brutal. Um, They've got really nothing. They've got pretty much just horrible goaltending. Um, Martin Jones not playing well. Just just all around, they've really, really fallen off a cliff, this team. And you kind of feel for Eric Carlson because he's mentioned, I've seen some quotes where he said, you know, hey, I, I didn't come here for a rebuild. Um, I want to win here. And he's not saying he wants out. Um, he's got a massive contract and he's got a no trade clause and everything like that. So it might be a little bit difficult for the Sharks to move him. But it's unfortunate for him because he probably thought, hey, I was in a shit situation in Ottawa for a lot of years. We finally made a run, and then they broke the team down. And now I go to San Jose. I got a good chance to win. And then, well, we're right back in the basement again with really no uh, no future at all in terms of any success, at least in the near future, um, for the San Jose Sharks. So you feel bad for Eric Carlson. You wonder if he's going to move. But I think, again, he'll probably be a piece that, if he does move, would be in the offseason. I don't see how any team can take on. I believe he has an $11 million cap hit. Um, or somewhere right in there, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, would be a very, very difficult trade to make in season, especially with the COVID flat cap. Um, so more to come on Eric Carlson. We'll keep an eye on that as well. Um, and Ricard Raquel, I think he's a name that's been swirling around as a potential fit for the Toronto Maple Leafs. 
Um, again, his asking price appears to be really high. I love to see him in a penguin sweater. He's a great scoring winger. Um, he just kind of like flies under the radar. You know, you'll be like looking at the stat sheet at the end of the year and he's got 75 points and you're like, holy shit, like Ricard Raquel putting up points on a bad team out in Anaheim, but he can play with anybody. He can play third line, fourth line. He can contribute, um, on the top line. He's a really good player. He can play with high end players. Um, I think a change of scenery would probably do him good. Um, but, you know, like I said, I would love to see him in a Penguin sweater, but I really don't expect the Penguins to be active at all at the trade deadline. Um, no matter how much they can come out and say they want to win now, they do. They certainly do. And I think this little um, stretch of wins that they put together in, in the past week or so um, has shown them they, that they can win. They're, they're beat up. They've got a lot of injuries, but I don't think they're going to make, and I don't think GM uh, Ron Hextall or the president, uh, Brian Burke, are going to make any knee-jerk reactions or add any players and give up prospects because they're in the... Um, they're in the game to like rebuild the draft prospects and rebuild the pipeline and make, you know, conserve their draft picks and things like that. If they can go out and find a, a trade that helps the team or they don't have to sell the farm to get them, I think they'll, you know, they might do that, but nothing, not a big splash like Penguin fans are, are used to seeing. Um, so it's going to be pretty crazy because again, I don't know if the Penguins are like, really a contender could they beat tampa could they beat toronto could they beat vegas in a playoff series i mean i'm sure they can i would never bet against crosby and malkin and latang and you know jari's playing well and they're playing good as a team but like the way they're playing now and the way they're constructed when you compare them against those teams that i just mentioned do you think they really should be buyers at the trade deadline i'm not sure i'm not sure they should be sellers either i think maybe they just stand pat and i think that's what they're going to do but it'll be very interesting um down there on fifth avenue in pittsburgh at ppg paints arena to see what hextall and berkey do um but you never know you never really know um let me take a swig of beer here because that was a lot i'll tell you as the podcasts go the Coors light just tastes better uh taking a look at the nhl stats a little bit the last couple of weeks I've come on here and I've read the stats and I don't really want to do that every week um, because it's the same usual suspects atop the leaderboard. It's Connor McDavid. It's Leon Dreisaitl, Patrick Kane, Austin Matthews. Really hasn't changed much since the beginning of the season, but I did want to point out that uh, Connor McDavid had 50. Uh, he's the first player to reach 50 points. I believe he has 53 points right now as I'm recording this. Um, and the other thing with the Oilers was last uh, week when we talked about how the Toronto Maple Leafs basically shut Dreisaitl and McDavid down for three straight games. And it really pissed off Dreisaitl and it pissed off McDavid, I'm sure, although he didn't say anything to the media that I saw. I'm sure it really rubbed them the wrong way and irritated them and lit a fire up under them to come out and, and play better. And they certainly did. Now, granted, they were playing, I believe, against the Ottawa Senators, who are just abysmal. Um, the following game, so poor Ottawa. They had to deal with the Edmonton Oilers coming off, getting you know embarrassed by the Leafs three straight games. But Leon Dreisaitl, that first game, uh, against the Ottawa after that being shut out for three straight by the Leafs. He had five points that night. Um, just pretty crazy. McDavid had four points in that game. I just wanted to talk about Dreisaitl. So he had five points, like I said, in that game. That was the fourth time in his career he had five points in a game, which is pretty crazy. If you think about it in today's NHL, you don't see too many five-point games. They're pretty you know few and far between for sure. So I was like, hey, I want to take a look and see, you know, in the past, and I know it's different eras and it's tough to compare, but who has the most five-point games in NHL history? Now, I'm sure you could have guessed it's probably Wayne Gretzky, but the number of five-point games just jumped off the page and blew me away. Unbelievable. So I just mentioned Leon Dreisaitl. He's been in the league a couple years. He's a great player, one of the best players in the league, if not the best player. He won the MVP last year in the Art Ross Trophy. Has four five-point games in his career. 
Pretty remarkable at this early in his career. Wayne Gretzky. I hope you're sitting down. Wayne Gretzky had 96 five-point games, at least five points. Some of those are six points, seven points, eight points. 96 games where he had at least five points. That's across his whole career. I think 79 of them came with the Edmonton Oilers, and then he went on to the Blues and the Rangers. And just in L.A., obviously. Unbelievable. Can you, like, imagine that? 96 times he got at least five points. Just ridiculous. It got me thinking about some other Wayne Gretzky records um, that I think will likely never be broken. I wanted to break those down for maybe anybody out there that's not aware of how prolific this guy was scoring. Do I think he's the best hockey player of all time? This might be an an argument for a different day, and I'd love to have it with somebody. But no, I think Mario Lemieux is the best hockey player of all time. You can call me biased, whatever you want to call me, but he's the guy that you basically, you know, he was coming at you and there's nothing you could do to stop it. Like Gretzky was so prolific point-wise, but he wasn't nearly as dominant, I would say, at times as Mario Lemieux. Now, granted, I didn't get a chance to watch live Wayne Gretzky a lot, I got to watch Lemieux like the latter half of his career and his comeback where he wasn't quite the player he was. But I've done a lot of studying on this and I've watched a lot of video, um, you know, and, and documentaries and things like that. And a lot of people will tell you that Mario Lemieux was the most like talented player. He was the tallest player, like six foot six, I believe, you know, huge guy. But he had the hands of a small guy, the hands of a Gretzky, but Gretzky wasn't nearly his size. Um, so he was just so dominant, but again, you really can't compare the two. They're two different types of players and you can't knock and you can't even, you can't even like brush off Wayne Gretzky's stats. So I wanted to go through some of these records that he has points in a season, 215 points is the record that Wayne Gretzky had in a season. Granted, think about it now in today's terms, the Art Ross trophy winner usually averages in the last 20 years is probably like somewhere around 110, 112 points, maybe, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. This guy had 215 points Wayne Gretzky did in a single season. That's the record. That same year, I believe he had 92 goals, which is also a record. Um, I, I know there's been some guys in the past that have come close to that. Brett Hall, I believe, had 86 goals in the 80s. Um, and in the early 90s, Timu Solani as a rookie, um, actually, the Finnish Flash, he actually had 76 goals, so pretty remarkable. But I don't think anybody today is going to even come close to getting 92 goals in a season. The most in, in the salary cap era, I believe, is Alex Ovechkin with uh, 65 goals. And I think it was 2008, 2009, I want to say. Um, but still, a lot of, a lot away from 92. Um, career points, Wayne Gretzky, 2,857 points. He has 936 more points than the second-place player, which is Yarmir Yager. And Yarmir Yager played 246 more games. One of the most remarkable stats. You could take away every goal that Wayne Gretzky's ever scored, all 894 of them, and he still has more points than anybody in NHL history. Just think about that. Take away every goal he's ever scored, just throw him out the window, and he still has more points than anybody's ever scored in the NHL. Incredible how prolific, again, how productive he was. Um, he's the only player ever to have, he's the only player ever to score over 200 points in a season, but this record is unbelievable. He did it three straight seasons from 1983 to 1986. He had over 200 points each season. Unbelievable. Uh, I think this might be the most ridiculous one is he had 51 straight games with a point, at least one point in 51 straight games. The next closest is Mario Lemieux with 46, but think about that 51 straight games with a point in most recent memory for me the most is Sidney Crosby had 25 I believe in the year he got the concussion in 2010 2011 um, he was on an absolute tear up to that point 
um, of his concussion. I think he had 66 points through 41 games that year and was buzzing. Uh, one of the most prolific guys of this era. And then uh, a few years later, Patrick Kane, I believe, beat him by one. I think he had a 26-game point streak. But again, that's still half of what Wayne Gretzky did. Just think about that. 51 straight games, you got a point. That's absurd. So I just wanted to talk, you know, touch on that. Um, a little bit about Wayne Gretzky and how prolific he was and how much fun he is to watch old highlights and just how dominant this guy was in terms of scoring the puck and passing the puck and setting his teammates up. So swig a beer for Wayne Gretzky, man. What an unbelievable player. Uh, keeping on the topic of amazing milestones, this past Tuesday night, Alex Ovechkin notched his 718th goal, uh, becomes sixth all-time in scoring. He passed Phil Esposito, the uh, the great Boston Bruin. Um, he also, on that goal, I believe, picked up his 1,300th point. So sip a beer for Ovechkin. Um, he's going for that 894 with Wayne Gretzky. This year, he's not as productive goal-wise as he's been, but you know it, it's definitely a race that's, that's there for the taking, and I think he can do it, but he's got to average probably 30 or 40 goals over the next four or five seasons to get there. Uh, but if anybody can do it, it's Ovechkin. I would never count him out in terms of scoring goals. It's just a matter of if he wants to stay here and play in the NHL. I know his contract's up this year and there hasn't really been any talks uh, between him and, and his, um, you know, in the general manager of the Capitals with Ovechkin's agents and things like that. So maybe they'll handle it in the offseason. I don't see him going anywhere else unless he goes back to Russia. But I, you know, I think he should stick around. Hopefully he sticks around for hockey fans' sake and starts lighting the lamp even more and continues and breaks Wayne Gretzky's record. It would be awesome to see. Uh, but sip a beer for Ovechkin for the 1,300th point and his 718th goal, becoming the sixth all-time NHL scorer. Unbelievable stat. And the second milestone I wanted to talk about, I mentioned it in the intro, uh, the flower, Marc-Andre Fleury. Uh, he becomes the fifth all-time in wins as an NHL goaltender. Uh, he only trails Martin Brodeur, who had 691 wins. Patrick Waugh, who had 551 wins. My favorite goaltender of all time, by the way. Uh, Roberto Luongo, 489 wins. Eddie Belfour, 484 wins. And then Marc-Andre Fleury sits at 480 wins. So you got to figure probably this season he's going to get to third. He's only nine nine wins behind Roberto Luongo. So unbelievable career for Marc-Andre Fleury. I'm very fortunate to have been able to watch him uh, for the most of his career as a Penguins fan. Um, just an unbelievable guy, unbelievable player. Uh, he was the first overall draft pick in 2003. Just lived up to the hype, a hundred percent. Great player, you know. He he played on great teams. You gotta you gotta mention that too. He played on teams like he came in right when the Penguins were getting Crosby. The Penguins were getting Malkin, Stahl, Latang. They had Gonchar. They had a juggernaut in the making, and obviously you see what they are today. But who knows where they would be without Mark Andre Fleury in goal? Um, he played great for many years. The one knock I would say on Mark Andre Fleury in terms of this record of him get, getting to fifth all time is some of these guys on this list. Um, didn't have any chance to have any shootout victories, or maybe they had just the tail end of their career. Um, they had shootouts because shootouts weren't implemented into the NHL until after the lockout in 2005, uh, 2006, that season. So when I looked up the stats, um, Marc-Andre Fleury has 58 of his 480 wins or shootout victories. He's third all-time behind Henrik Lundqvist and Ryan Miller for most shootout victories. So you got to factor that in. I mean, 58 times he's gotten a shootout win. I don't know how many games he played, maybe how many shootouts he's lost, but obviously if he's third all time in shootout wins, he's one of the best uh, shootout goaltenders in NHL history. And you just think about, you know, some of those guys like wall and Brodeur early in his career and Luongo early in his career and Belfort, the, the, the four guys above him, if they had a chance to play their entire career, 
with the shootout, how many more wins they would have. Because a lot of their games, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a lot of their games probably ended ended in ties. That's how the NHL used to be. It was a lot like uh, soccer. If you you know you would play the whole game, then you play a five minute overtime. If nobody scores, it just ends in a time. Both teams get a point. Uh, they changed that because. In 2005, 2006, they wanted to add more scoring and more excitement and draw fans back in after the lockout and things like that. So that's what they decided to do. Um, so you you have to wonder a little bit about that um, with Marc-Andre Fleury, how it would impact him. But it's not his fault, the era he played in. So I'm not knocking Marc-Andre Fleury. But, you know, one interesting story about Marc-Andre Fleury is in 2018, uh, Penguins beat writer um, Josh Yoey, he asked Marc-Andre Fleury how he was putting up such good numbers and the best numbers of his career while playing for an expansion team after he went over to Vegas, after he was picked up in the expansion draft from the Penguins when the Penguins elected to stick with Matt Murray. And Flurry mentioned, quote, you know, I'm not in Pittsburgh, so I don't have to deal with bullshit breakaways and two-on-ones all the time, close quote. And he said it with like, you always said he said it with like a little bit of a, you know, he was laughing a little bit, right? But he was definitely being serious. And that always kind of like just, it was crazy to me that he, you know, he was right. He was a hundred percent right. So you have to give him credit, but like, it was kind of weird how he like took a little dig at him. I know, I know he was saying it in jest, um, but he's definitely, you know, Vegas definitely locked it down, played great defense. And maybe if the Penguins would have done that, that's not in the Penguins DNA, but maybe if they would have done that, he'd have better numbers and maybe he would have, you know, uh, more Vezina trophies. He has, doesn't have any Vezina trophies in, in his career and he's up for it this year. I'm sure as we talked about last episode, um, you know, it's crazy like that quote where you know people are dangling and people are causing two-on-ones and he's having to bail his teammates out and stuff like that. It reminds me of a story um, when guys like Brooks Orpik said Penguin players need to quit playing like Globetrotters. And like it always rubbed me the wrong way whenever uh, players did that and called out their teammates. And I used to love Brooks Orpik. When he was a Penguin, he was the longest tenured Penguin up until he left in free agency to join the Capitals. But like I always loved him, but one thing that always rubbed me the wrong way was how he would call out his teammates and like how he kind of was behind closed doors. We found out that after the fact, um, again, I'm not in the locker room, so I'm not trying to pretend like, you know, I, I know this guy. But I just remember the stories of like, like what I said with him saying about players playing like Globetrotters, talking about Crosby, Malk, and Latang, trying to dangle through everybody instead of just playing smart hockey and simple hockey. And just the way he said it, I could understand why he was saying it. Maybe they're struggling a little bit. But just the way he said it always rubbed me the wrong way. And the one story that really pissed me off was um, February 2012. The Penguins, I believe they were in a six-game losing streak at the time, if I remember correctly, or maybe seven games, somewhere in there. And Crosby, remember, this is whenever he was dealing with his concussions. So he had only played in eight games in the last 14 months um, due to that concussion. And some Penguins, mainly Craig Adams, Brooks Orpik, Jordan Stahl, and Matt Cook, uh, basically were saying, like, we need to have a meeting. We need to have a players meeting to see if, you know, it's worth nominating or um, having a new captain named instead of Sidney Crosby because he's not there. And I remember this like it was yesterday. Like that was the most preposterous thing I've ever seen. So basically the story goes that they had an eight player meeting. So as I mentioned, the four on the one side to potentially replace Crosby as captain while he was out were Craig Adams, Brooks Orpik, Jordan Stahl, and Matt Cook. And on the other side, the ones that thought Crosby should remain captain were Evgeny Malkin, Marc-Andre Fleury, Aaron Asham, and Pascal Dupuis. So, like, it just always rubbed me the wrong way that Brooks Orpik would say, like, you know, we he was one of the guys that wanted to strip Crosby of the captaincy. And, like, ultimately, at the end of the uh, the meeting, they had some ideas discussed, and the meeting abruptly ended, and Malkin stood up and said, quote, 
this is fucking stupid. Sid's captain. And then everyone like agreed that no one said a word about it later. The next day of practice, they all came out because it was all over the media. And the media somehow, I don't know how they did it, but they somehow got a hold of this story. And basically they were saying like, oh no, are they going to take the captaincy off of Sid? Like, could you imagine if they took the C off of Crosby? That would just be the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Like, because he's out with an injury. It's not like he's slacking or whatever the case is. And like, what's the captain going to do? You're going to throw the captain on, you know, Malkin didn't want it, obviously. Who are you going to throw it on? Orpic? You're going to throw it on Latang or whatever the case is? I mean, come on. But the next day at practice, all the players came out and they wore C's on their jersey uh, to show the media and show their unity, I guess. They all supported Sid. It just made no sense. So, um, you know, a swig of beer for Gino, a swig of beer for Flurry on his amazing accomplishment. You know, both are going to have their sweaters, I think, one day um, in the rafters at PPG Paints Arena, and it'll be well-deserved. Uh, but I wanted to mention those little stories. But again, swig of beer for Flurry, swig of beer for Gino for sticking up for Sidney Crosby. Speaking of number 71, Evgeny Malkin, he was on an absolute tear coming into Tuesday night against Boston. He had points in eight straight. Monday night, he got his 1,100th point in the NHL. He's the third Pittsburgh Penguin to do so. Tuesday, as we talked about, unfortunately, he got banged up. Um, he left the game. He came back out and, and tried to attempt another shift, but then he ended up getting uh, going back to the locker room. So I haven't got any word on what his injury is or what the timeline is. We'll hope he's not injured um, for very long. But I didn't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this Reddit article this guy put together that my buddy Luke sent me. I have no idea how long it took this person to do this, but this guy pulled all 105,639 penalties called in the NHL from 2010 to about a week ago in 2021 when he published this article. And in the article, it was awesome. It was so interesting to read. But Evgeny Malkin, not surprising at all, was sixth in most penalties taken with 346 and first in hooking penalties committed. Just unbelievable. The Penguins were second in penalties called on them with 3,921 and were first in penalties drawn with 3,995. So for all those fans out there that say the referees overwhelmingly favor the Penguins, yes, they had the most power plays at 3,995 over the last 11 years, but they're also shorthanded second most in the league over that time span as well. So I don't want to hear that shit. Um, and lastly, the best part of the article and definitely the least surprising thing in the article is Tom Wilson, the forward for the Capitals, um, the scumbag we've talked about. He wasn't even in the league the first three years of this list, but he is still first in penalties taken in the National Hockey League with 390. Not surprising at all. Um, just just crazy, crazy stats and crazy that, that this guy on Reddit uh, would take the time to pull all these stats. It was pretty awesome to read. Um, I'll tweet this article out from the Rambling Brews podcast uh, Twitter account at Rambling Brews and see if you guys want to check it out because it breaks it down in, in just like t by team, you know, I guess against what opponent you got the penalties. It breaks it down by which referees called it. It's pretty, pretty sophisticated stats. It's pretty funny to see. Um, but thanks to my, my homie Luke uh, for sending that over. It was an awesome article. I wanted to pivot over to uh, what I mentioned in the intro this Friday. The NCAA men's basketball tournament starts arguably the best sports weekend of the year. You got the round of 64, the round of 32. Um, it's one of those weekends where you just want to sit your ass on the couch. You got to have some Coors Light, maybe have a little cooler next to your couch so you don't have to get up. Um, you got some buffalo chicken dip, you got some veggie tray, you got a pizza ordered, you got some chicken wings, whatever the case is, you're loaded up and you're just going to sit there and watch sports and watch basketball all weekend long. There's games on every hour of the day. It seems like it's just a great time. Um, Illinois, Baylor, Gonzaga, and Michigan, are the top four one seeds in each respective region. Um, Illinois appears to be the top team in the tournament. They're coming in on a high, playing great. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that goes and how everything goes with the tournament because anything can happen. Um, I was looking at the bracket, and I, admittedly, I didn't follow college basketball too much this year, but I noticed that one team that I I saw that potentially had a gripe with their seed was Oklahoma State. They were a four seed. Um, they've got the best player in the country, the, the consensus number one draft pick in the NBA, Cade Cunningham. Um, and I think they potentially could, could make a run here. And we'll talk about it in a little bit in terms of gambling, but I think it might be smart money to try to throw some coin on that and see if you can, uh, you can get the win there. Um, because I think they can make a long run in this, in this, um, this region of the bracket, Alabama, Alabama is a two seed. Like when I saw that, I was like, what the hell? Like I can't get away from this team. Alabama, they just, they're dominant in football In college football. I used to love it. I can't stand it really anymore because like no teams can win except Alabama and Clemson and, and the teams that are all, um, you know, a, appear to be cheating every year because they got four and five star running backs that are on the fourth string on the depth chart and how they get all these guys. It just boggles my mind. But at any rate, I'm not accusing them, but I know it just seems fishy, but it's the same teams that can win every year. That's the beauty of college basketball, at least, is like the NCAA tournament is just like, I mean, it's really a flawed system in terms of determining who the national champion is because like there's teams that are probably don't deserve to be in the tournament in terms of the top 64 teams in the country. Like I know there's teams on the outside looking in like this year, Duke had a horrible year, but Duke could probably beat some of these teams that are like 15 seed, 14 seed, 16 seed. At any rate, like I said, I didn't really watch it. So I understand that's the whole um, idea of the tournament is like if you win your conference, you get in or you get these at large bids and things like that, depending on your record and some um, out of conference wins and, you know, stuff like that, your out of conference schedule, all of that play into it. But Alabama, I mean, to see them as a two seed really shocked me. And I did some research. I talked to my buddy, Troy. Um, he mentioned that Nate Oates is their coach and he has a really unique offensive style. Um, in practice, it's pretty crazy. I actually like looked up their court. They, he tapes off the court to the point, like whenever they're having a practice game or they're having a scrimmage to the point, like if you shoot a mid range jumper. So if you don't know what a mid range jumper is, it's basically like just inside the three point line. It's not quite like a little floater inside the key. It's definitely not a layup. It's kind of like just inside the, the uh, three point line or like right around the foul lines, like a mid range jumper. He really just wants his team to not even think about that as a plausible shot to take in a basketball game because it's such a low percentage shot. If you're going to shoot from out there, you might as well shoot from three is his philosophy. So it's crazy. Like in the scrimmages, you only get one point. If you shoot a mid range jump shot, he wants guys basically either shooting threes, deep threes as well, or, or dunking or making layups. Um, it's kind of like the Steph Curry effect in the NBA where like basketball, all it is now is dunks and threes. There's not a lot of offense. It's just guys that can pull up from 40 feet and bang home a three whenever they want. Doesn't matter who's playing them on defense or if the defender has his hand in his face. Um, so we'll see what happens with Alabama because you can really live and die by the three in the tournament. It's a single elimination tournament. You go cold one game, you're toast. Um, so that can definitely happen. We saw that, you know, me growing up as a West Virginia uh, fan, you know, back in the day with Kevin Pitsnoggle and those guys, like they would just bang home threes left and right. And they made the elite eight and then they just froze up and went cold. And you're going to lose that way. If you have no other offense or you can't adjust and adapt, you're toast. So we'll see what happens with Alabama. Um, it could definitely go either way. West Virginia, I mentioned them. They're a three seed this year. I think that's probably the right seed. Um, they played Moorhead State in the first game. And WVU with Bobby Huggins, their their style can be very tough to beat in the tournament. Um, they play a very aggressive defense. They used to play a full court press all the time. I don't think they do that anymore. They do it at times. They bring it out at certain times of the game. Uh, but it really takes a certain 
you know, athletic ability for your team and a certain buy-in from your team, it's very, very, very difficult to play against a team that full court presses. And if you're not aware of what that means, it's basically like most teams will, you know, you play defense from half court. You conserve a little bit of energy. You let the other team, after you make a basket, they inbound the ball, they bring it up over half court, then you play your set defense and all that stuff, right? West Virginia, whenever they're playing that press, the press is basically whenever you make a basket, you're right on somebody. You're guarding them. You're giving them trouble inbounding the ball under their own basket. You're making it very difficult for them to um, go over half court. They have to get it over in 10 seconds, I believe is the rule in uh, college basketball. So you're making it very difficult. And almost by the time they get it over half court, if they do, they've got less time on the shot clock, obviously. And a lot of times they're out of, you know, they're out of gas. They don't have much energy because they've been working so hard just to get the ball into a scoring position. Um, that it can wear teams down and it can really wear you down in the NCAA tournament because you don't have a lot of time to prepare for that. There's not a lot of teams that play a press because not a lot of teams have the ability and have the athletic um, ability of each player to be able to have the endurance to do that all game or do that, you know, in spurs throughout the game. So teams don't see it a lot. Um, so it definitely can be an advantage for WVU. So we'll see how they go. I mean, they've got a great team. I'm hoping that they can, you know, they, I looked at the percentages. They've got about a 63% chance. It looked like on ESPN uh, based on the experts picks to make the sweet 16. And I think they can make a run. So I'm pulling for the Mountaineers. We'll see what we can do. Um, it's pretty cool that the uh, tournament, it's usually in like different cities throughout the country, right? But with COVID this year, it's all in the state of Indiana. So they're playing at um, Indiana University. They've got a setup at uh, Lucas Oil Stadium where the Colts play. They've got a, a setup, I'm sure, where the Indiana Pacers play. Uh, where Purdue is and stuff like that. So it's going to be pretty cool to see how the different venues are. They're not going to be like a sterile environment. It's going to be like a legit, you know, like college basketball um, atmosphere. It's not going to be like a big NFL stadium for every game where the courts all look the exact same and the fans, you can't see them and stuff like that. So it should make for an interesting, um, you know, viewing perspective for the fans on TV. I'm excited for that. And they're going to have 25% capacity. I understand. So I don't know if that's going to be family and friends or if they're selling tickets or whatever the case is, but I'm excited for the NCAA tournament. Um, I mentioned Michigan. They're a one seed. It's pretty cool to see Jawan Howard, former Fab Five member um, of the of the great Michigan team with Jalen Rose and Chris Weber. Um, just unbelievable team they had. And he's kind of leading his alma mater back and they're a one seed. He spent a lot of time um, in the NBA, obviously had a great NBA career. And then he spent time as an NBA assistant coach. Um, really owning his craft and he's he's great he's god sent to that university and they love him up there in uh, ann arbor um, with michigan so leading his um, alma mater to the tournament is definitely respectable but to lead him to be a number one seed is is just remarkable um, and patrick ewing same thing he he leads georgetown he's an nba great play for the knicks um, he leads georgetown his alma mater uh, to the ncaa tournament I believe they're a 12 seed, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they weren't very good until he got there. They missed the tournament a couple years, um, I think, when he was there. But he ultimately has gotten them to the tournament. Um, and I saw a funny quote from him the other day. So, like I mentioned, he played for the Knicks in Madison Square Garden. And that's where the Big East tournament is. And he was saying, like, you know, hey, I, I, all these people are stopping me, asking me for my credentials. Who am I, you know, with all the COVID stuff? And he's like, I mean, how do you, like, it, it, it was, like, kind of arrogant, but not really. He was saying it in jest, but you could tell he meant it. It was like how do you not know who I am? I'm Patrick Ewing. I played here for so many years. I'm going to have to call James Dolan, the owner of the Knicks, the owner of Madison Square Garden, see what the fuck's going on because my jersey's in the rafters. Patrick Ewing's jersey's in the rafters at Madison Square Garden is retired. Um, but it was just pretty funny to see that. So more power to Jawan Howard and Patrick Ewing leading their alma maters to the, uh, to the big dance. Uh, swig of beer for them. I'm going to have to crack another one here. 
Last thing on the tournament I wanted to mention was um, pretty cool that the NCAA, they usually get things wrong. Um, they're just usually like way behind the eight ball, just doing the dumbest stuff and not using common sense. And I think everybody's kind of come to realize that, but last year, you know, whenever the NCAA tournament was canceled due to COVID, they really didn't do anything to help those guys that maybe were seniors, um, or fifth year seniors or whatever the case was, they kind of just lost their year and they didn't get to play in the NCAA tournament. And I guess the NCAA's reasoning was, well, you got to play your whole season at least. So they're not going to give them any, um, you know, any leeway in terms of eligibility, but they've changed their tune this year. And, uh, even though most teams were able to play their full season or at least play it, you know, mostly of their full, most of their full season, um, the NCAA is going to allow all the players um, in NCAA to be able to have an extra year of eligibility. So essentially this year of eligibility won't count. So I think that's pretty cool. Like you got guys that are seniors, they can go in the NCAA tournament and then choose to maybe go back and get a graduate degree um, or whatever the case is and come back and play another year. Um, because honestly, like this might sound rude, but if you're like a fifth year senior or you're a fourth year, you know, you're in your true traditional senior year and you're not in the NBA yet, chances of you going to the NBA are pretty slim. Usually they draft on potential. So if you're a freshman, sophomore, and you have great upside and great potential, you're going to probably get drafted and cherry picked out of your college team. But these guys could potentially, you know, earn a, earn a look, uh, if they play next year in NCAA and play well, and maybe, you know, make a run in the tournament and get some experience, they can get a look in, uh, Europe or over there in Asia, wherever the case is. And I think it's pretty awesome that the NCAA is doing that. Cause those kids like, I would hate to be in college right now with everything going on with COVID, let alone be an athlete and potentially have your last season be ruined because of COVID or whatever the case is. Um, so, you know, more power to the NCAA. It's awesome to see that they're doing that. Um, I just can't wait to watch this weekend. Likely I'm going to be gambling on a few games. Um, so I think we should probably dive into the gambling Bruce segment on the podcast. What do you think? Last week we were two and one. So I had three picks. I had the uh, Washington Capitals to beat the Flyers money line. That hit. So they had just had to win that game outright. I had uh, the Penguins to beat the um, Buffalo Sabres by two goals. So puck line. And Sidney Crosby with the puck line. Jesus, 200-foot empty netter with 40 seconds to go. Uh, made it 2-0. So that really helped. Um, and then the Leafs, they got shit-pumped by the Ottawa Senators, which I didn't expect. Ottawa, like I said, they're brutal. Um, and it was crazy because Matt Murray, the goaltender for the senators, he got hurt in the warmups and their backup goalie came in. I don't even know his name, but he's never played in the NHL before. And he came in and he got a big win, um, against the Toronto Maple Leafs in pretty convincing fashion too. I think it was like, you know, they won by two or three goals. So, um, all in all two and one on the weekend, uh, brings us to three and three in that segment. So I'll take that 50% win percentage in gambling. If, if you know anything about gambling and I don't know a lot, I'm very, very new to this. Um, but I, I imagine if you're you're winning 50% of your bets, you're doing pretty good. Um, so I don't I don't have any picks this week um, necessarily in terms of any hockey picks I'm looking at. If I come up with any, I'll tweet them out uh, at Rambling Brews on Twitter or post them on Instagram at Rambling Brews Podcast if I find anything that I like. But I, like I mentioned, I'm going to be gambling probably on the NCAA tournament. I'll throw some picks um, up on those social media accounts I just mentioned. But for here on the podcast, I've got one that I just placed. Um, it's a future bet on Oklahoma State. I mentioned with Cade Cunningham, the best player in the country, the number one draft pick um, going to be this year for the NBA. Uh, I saw them at plus 2,700 to win the national title, so I threw a little bit of money on that. Uh, I think that's a pretty solid pick because they can make a run. And like I said, they're a four seed, so they'll have a little bit of a difficult matchup going through, but they definitely probably should have been a, a, a seed, maybe like a two or a three. Um, 
So we'll see what happens, but I think that's smart money, and I've actually seen some people online that have said the same thing as well. So I'm riding with Oklahoma State, the Cowboys, to win the national championship. Um, in terms of my bet, obviously with my heart, I, I'd like to see West Virginia win it. Um, but stay tuned and, and take a look at the social media accounts, again, at Rambling Brews on Twitter and at Rambling Brews Podcast on Instagram and see if there's any uh, if, if, if I see any you know bets that I think are, are worth throwing some coin on. So keep your eyes peeled for that. This week in uh, sports and entertainment history, the show Cops, one of my favorite shows of all time. I don't even know if it's still on. Um, I'd love to see, you know, have somebody text me or somebody tweet me or get a hold of me or whatever the case is and let me know if it's still on or what channel it's on or what stream service it's on. Uh, but I love all those shows like Cops, Alaskan State Troopers. Um, I liked Live PD. I don't know if it's still on either. Campus PD was always great with the drunk college kids just pretending like they could get out of stuff because they were in law school and stuff like that. It was always funny to see that. Um, all those types of shows I really like. Uh, so on March 11th, 1989, Cops debuted for the first time. One of the best theme songs of all time of any TV show there ever was. So big swig of beer for the police officers out there. A big swig of beer for everybody on the cop show. Just an unbelievably entertaining show. And I hope it's still going on. I'd love to start watching it again. It, it inspires shows too, like comedy shows like Reno 911, which I think are great. Uh, one of my favorite TV shows of all time too. But uh, big swig of beer for cops. What a great show that is. And lastly, in terms of uh, sports and entertainment this week in uh, history, March 13th, 2007, Mary Lemieux came out on the ice and announced that the Penguins had reached a deal with the uh, the city to build a new arena and that the Penguins were going to remain in Pittsburgh um, where they belong. So that's an unbelievable announcement. I remember exactly where I was. It was a great, great announcement, great feel because the Penguins have had some financial troubles, as everybody knows, um, over the course of their existence a couple of times. Um, so it was great to hear that they were finally stable financially. They had a great team, obviously, with Crosby, Malk, and uh, Latang. They had Fleury at the time, uh, just cornerstone pieces of the franchise that would go on to do great things here in the city of Pittsburgh. And Penguins fans around the world and people in the city of Pittsburgh deserved to have it um, in their city and stay there forever. So that was awesome. Uh, one of my favorite moments in Penguin history. Uh, just seeing Mario come out there and like gives you chills every time you watch the video and hear the crowd and how like passionate they are when Lemieux comes out and makes the announcement. So swig a beer for the big guy, 66, for saving the day for like what, the 500th time? The last thing I want to mention uh, was last episode I talked about how I was going to watch Iron Man 2 and have a review and have my notes and everything and go over it this week on the uh, the podcast. But unfortunately, I didn't do that. Um, there was just too many conference tournament basketball games on. The Penguins played a number of games. Um, There's just so much good hockey on. I never got around to it. So I'm going to put that on the back burner. So save that. If you guys are looking forward to that, save that. Um, I'm definitely going to do that at some point here in the future. And please keep sending movie requests over to me. I might put up a uh, Instagram poll at Rambling Brews Podcast on Instagram and see if anybody has any suggestions. It doesn't have to be movie. You know, it could be a movie. It could be a TV show. It could be a documentary. It could be food. It could be anything you want me to try and give my review on. I know some people really like the uh, the beer reviews, so I'm going to keep those coming. But I would love to keep doing different types of reviews on things that I'm not familiar with um, based on the last 11 episodes. You know, if you think of anything that might interest you and what you would uh, want me to try or want me to watch or whatever the case is, send them through over on Instagram or text me, tweet me at Rambling Brews, whatever you got to do. I'd be happy to do that. Um, so I'm looking forward to any requests that come through. And on that note, I hope you guys have a tremendous weekend. I cannot wait to see tweets of you guys dummy and Coors Lights watching the NCAA tournament. And remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around here. Pop a top again. I've just got time for one more round Set them up, my friend 
Then I'll be gone and you can let some other fool sit down I'd like for you to listen to a joke I heard today From a woman who said she was through and calmly walked away I tried to smile and did a while But it felt so out of place Did you ever hear of a clown With teardrops streaming down his face Pop a top again I think I'll have another round Set him up, my friend then I'll be gone and you can let some other fool sit down. Top again. 